Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. I'm really not going to even read any opening scripture this morning before I get into this because I want to give you an overview of the Thessalonian letters, a little background on the Thessalonian church to give us a context, and then perhaps next week if I feel inspired to continue going methodically through the two letters, we'll do that. But what I'm doing today is I am summarizing both letters for you. There's, there's something that Paul had to say concerning specific issues in the Thessalonian church. I'm breaking that down into three issues they need spiritual answers to. That's the reason I call it the theology of the Thessalonians because Paul gives them scriptural, biblical answers. We would call it biblical answers. Of course, that was he was actually writing the Bible as he was writing them, but he, he gives them theological answers to their spiritual dilemmas. Now, let's just do a little bit of background on the Thessalonian church and just hold on with me for a minute. I'm going to try my best not to let you doze off while I'm going through this, but you can go back to the book of Acts and you can see on Paul's journeys the birth of of the Thessalonian church. On his first missionary journey, he went up, I, I wish I had a map of the, uh, the territory over there so I could show you on the screen, but he, he went up from the Palestinian area into the northern uh, regions, which would have been at that time, uh, part of that was Galatia. And he established a lot of uh, plants in that area, later wrote a letter to the churches of Galatia, which the, the Galatians is not a single church. It's all the churches in that area of Galatia. And then he returned to Antioch. And then on his second missionary journey, he revisited many of those first church plants as well as planting a few new ones. And among those are some very notable names that he either planted or or. Uh, visited and encouraged churches, and uh, he he went to Ephesus. We know the Ephesian letter, and he went to Philippi, the letter to the Philippians, and uh, Thessalonica was on his second missionary journey, and a city called Corinth, which from which we get two letters to the Corinthians, and then on his third journey, as he did, he would revisit some of these, try to plant churches if he could, and revisit some of those he had planted. And he did, he revisited evidently uh, Corinth and Philippi and Ephesus. However, he did not revisit Thessalonica. It was a one-shot thing. Now we go to the story in the book of Acts of how he ended up there in Thessalonica. Uh, he, he, he went to the, the city as a part of his second missionary journey. And as he was his custom on his missionary work, he would visit the synagogue first. And he was sometimes 
accepted and sometimes rejected. Well, he went to the synagogue in Thessalonica and had mixed uh, results. Uh, there were people who received what he had to say and there were some Jews in the synagogue that he angered. And so there were a, a few Jews, and according to exactly what the scripture says, a number, a large number of God-fearing Greeks who received Paul's ministry. And it says quite a few prominent women. So a few Jews, a lot of Greeks, and, and quite a few prominent women were his converts on this trip. Well, this left a few Jews from the synagogue angry, and jealous and they went looking for Paul later on going to the house of a man named Jason which we surmise from this account that he was staying at Jason's house and they go to Jason's house and they demand to see Paul it's it's a mob that has approached the house and Jason says well he's not here I don't know where he is so that that's okay we'll take you so they, they drug Jason out of the house and they took him for the city leaders and they said, <clears throat> we're not only upset with Paul, but we're going to bring accusations against this man because he is housing a man that is promoting an illegal religion by uh, Roman law. And you people need to do something about this. Of course, their ulterior motive was they didn't like their religion uh, being messed with. They were jealous of that. They didn't like the new message he brought into the synagogue about Jesus Christ was the Messiah because after all, the diet and the wool Jews, they were happy to see him crucified. They did not believe that was their Messiah. They never would have done that. So they hauled Jason out and, they, and this mob is growing and the people who are sympathetic to Paul hear what's going on and they go to Paul and say, you've got to get out of town now. So they ushered him out of town, got him out safely. He went on to a little place called Berea. Now, the Bereans were interesting people. They were very receptive. They loved to study the word. They were eager to learn from the word. So he goes into Berea. He has great results there and studious people. And about the time that Paul thinks Thessalonica and his sour experience there is behind him, here comes the mob. They heard that Paul was in Berea, and they said, well, let's go over there and make trouble for him. So they left their town to Thessalonica, went and looked him up in Berea, and began to create a, a mob problem there in that town as well. And the people who loved Paul did the same thing they did in Thessalonica. They came and got him and said, you got to get out of here. <laughs> so he was ushered out of Berea and went to the coast. Now, that's kind of the history of how he went into Thessalonica, made a few converts, and a church was established. Unfortunately, he was unable to return on a follow-up visit to the city of Thessalonica. So the letters that he wrote to that church are interesting to us because he wasn't able to do in-person discipleship and development beyond that first missionary trip just to establish the church. Now, just so far, even though it seems like I've probably given you some dry details, there's something about this that I want to apply for you. And that is, you just can't gauge your effectiveness by what you see. It would be hard to judge Paul's ministry 
at Thessalonica as a success just based on what you see. Especially when Berea was such an easy place to minister and he got chased out of Thessalonica. And how could he count that a great success? Yet we have proof in the two letters that ultimately there was a strong church that was established there. And, and furthermore, we also have to go back to the book of Acts to remember this. Do you, do you remember, if you know your Bible well enough, why he ended up in Thessalonica over there across the Aegean Sea and in the territory of Greece, which would have been Macedonia, and there he entered Philippi and Corinth, Thessalonica. How, how did he end up over there? Well, see, he, he, at, the, at night he had a vision. And in this vision, there was this man in Macedonia that was standing up and saying, please come, please come, we need you. And Paul woke up and says, I, I really feel confident God has given me a vision of somebody in Macedonia that needs us. We're going to Macedonia, Greece. That was quite a journey to go there. But God had spoken to him through this vision. We call it the Macedonian call. And that's the reason he went to Macedonia, Greece. That's the reason he went to uh, random places. He didn't know where this man was or if it was just, just symbolic of people there needing to hear the gospel. He just went wherever the Spirit led him. And so it was a matter of following God's leading and being obedient and I say we don't, we don't, well, it's not fair for us to try and judge our effectiveness, our success by what we see. Because sometimes it's not until much later on that then the harvest comes from the seeds that had been planted. I remember talking to a missionary who had been in Japan for five years and that, that poor missionary, he was starved for fellowship. When we had concluded our service, anybody that he could catch and talk to, he talked and talked and talked and talked and talked and talked. And it got to the point where the people were wanting to leave, but they couldn't get away from this guy because he was just chatty. And so finally, if they squirmed out, he could find somebody else and zero in on them. Well, finally, the building was cleared. There was nobody left but my wife and I. He made a beeline toward us, and he talked and talked and talked and talked. And he, was, he must have been so lonely. But as I listened to him, I discovered something about him. He'd been in Japan for five years. Not one convert. You know, it's a long time to minister as a missionary and not see one breakthrough it must have created a, a sense of despair and loneliness in him you just don't know what seed you're planting now I wish I had an end to that story I wish I could say that years later something he did there uh, planted seed that, that a church grew that people were saved I don't know what the end of that was I just know that we face struggles oftentimes in trying to just live life 
and oftentimes in serving God and oftentimes trying to be obedient to what he wants us to do. We struggle. And we can't always determine if we're making any headway, if there's any success. It's those, those little incidental seeds that we drop that later on we learn what somebody benefit from that. Now, here, here's a little example uh, of that. And, and it's not as much on a spiritual level as it is just on the practical level. But sometime in the uh, recent years past, I had put something on Facebook about budgeting. Now, my, my wife was telling me about this because my sister was talking to Anne and Anne was talking to me and that's the way gossip gets around in our family. So Anne is telling me, you put something on Facebook a few years ago about budgeting and how simple it was, and if you don't know how to set a budget, just simply get you a dozen envelopes and put the money in each envelope that you plan to spend on that project or that whatever that is, and when the money's gone, it's gone. That's your budget. I don't even remember writing that. But I, I, I do know the concept, and I have shared the concept, but I don't remember that post for sure. Well, my niece read that. I don't, I, I don't think she's ever acknowledged reading anything on Facebook. She's never liked, she's never she commented, but in that background, she read that, and boy, did she go to town with the envelopes and the budget. And she uh, graduated from college and she set up her little envelope system and not making a great deal of money, but she was budgeting. And, and uh, then her, uh, like she's got roommates. She's got roommates? She's got roommates. And she forced them to do it <laughs> and took control of the envelopes. And they have to come to her and say, can we have a little money so we can go? Said, no. It's not in your budget. Then her brother, uh, she set him up on the envelope. He's temporarily staying back at my sister's house, his mother's house, my sister's house. And he come, and she comes over there, and she sets him up on the envelope system. And she leaves, and he is saying uh, to my sister, say, Mom, I don't want to do this. <laughs> it's too late. <laughs> You're going to do this. Now, you see, that's just a little example of something that you do that you don't know somebody who's listening and what it means to them and how they pick up on that. How much more in the kingdom, while we are sowing the word, while we're getting the message out, it, that seed might drop into somebody's heart and somebody's life. You don't know what you're leaving there. Now, Paul didn't know the success he was having in Thessalonica, but look at the church that was established there, and we learn a little bit about that church as we read the letters to the Thessalonians. Now, they, the, the, the Thessalonians had some problems, had some concerns, not like, the, not like the Corinthian church did. We studied that in a series uh, in the recent past. They had problems. Uh, the Thess Thessalonians had some concerns. And Paul knew that what they needed in order to answer these concerns they have, to answer questions, they needed a good theology. And I'm, I'm going to say to you, every one of you here today, I don't care who you are, I don't care how old you are, 
how young you are, you need a good theology. And I don't want you to worry about this word theology and say, Pastor, you're going to put me to sleep with this series. No, I, I, I'm not. I put you to sleep with everything I do. I'm not worried about that. But uh, there's really something here to get hold of. You need a good theology. See, in a sense, I want to say every one of you are theologians. Now, if I define theologian in a very narrow sense, only to apply to the people who are good theologians, like like carpenter, you know, not everybody who picks up a hammer and drives a nail in a piece of wood is a carpenter. So I guess by a strict definition of carpenter, everybody who swings a hammer, I say, I could say, you're no carpenter. And I guess by the same sense, I could say, you're no theologian. If you'd. But in another sense, you have a theology. Maybe that's the better way to say it. Maybe if theologian, the word is just reserved for the ones who are really good at it, then in that case, I can say, look, folks, I'm no theologian. But I can tell you, every one of you have a theology. Everyone, and, and in that sense, in that very broad sense, every one of you are a theologian to some degree so what is theology it, it means what you believe about God and God thinks in that sense if you'll allow me to broaden that out in that sense atheists have a theology they are a theologian they're very poor but they have a, a theology their theology is simply there is no God in the discussion that's what they believe about God it doesn't exist that's their theology What's your theology? What do you believe about God? Well, you know, first of all, do you believe God exists? That's a good place to start. Do you believe that God has wants a personal relationship with human beings? That's another part of your theology. Uh, do you believe that God is just a God of love that he would never send anybody to hell? He would never allow anybody to go to hell. Well, that's a part of some people's theology. Their theology is God is a God of love. He would never punish anybody in hell for eternity. It's poor theology. It's not biblical theology, but that's their understanding, their opinion of God. So it's important that if you have theology, you have a good theology because a poor theology will not carry you through life it's people's misunderstanding of God and misunderstanding of the Bible that gets them in trouble and often leaves them in a state of life that they cannot extricate themselves from it leaves them with problems and difficulties that they cannot overcome because they don't understand God appropriately Job had a misunderstanding about God though he slay me yet will I serve him God wasn't doing that he thought he was and you can't hardly fault Job for for not understanding why this is happening to him I'm just saying we have no excuse we understand God wasn't doing that to Job so sometimes our bad theology gets us in trouble I have people I run into a lot of times, many times at church, sometimes strangers, and they come in, and they want to blurt out their weird theology on our first meeting. And, you know, that's not really any time for me to get into a theological discussion with them and tell them, 
well, quite frankly, you're nuts. That's just not the time to do that. So you just kind of stand there and you just kind of nod your head and, okay, I understand. I, I mean, like the people that they visited my church one time. And then afterward, they were quizzing me about what do you believe about communion? Oh, what do you mean what you believe? What, 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 what do we believe? And they said, well, we believe that you need to have communion every Sunday. Well, right there, that told me they had a theology about communion that wasn't, they weren't going to be happy in our church because we don't have it every Sunday. We have it once a month. Some churches have it once a year. So, you know, there's people that they want to come in and they, they've got a pet theological issue and they're going around trying to figure out if anybody agrees with them or not. If they don't agree, they're, they're gone looking for those people somewhere else. How many of you here were, were here the first Sunday I ever preached for Westside? See, there's a number of you here. And then we had a question and answer session that night, an interview session, and people were trying to check out the pastor and find out what he's like. And one man stands up in the back and says, I have a question. What do you think about the King James Version Bible? I knew where he was going with that. I knew that. How many of you remember what I said? You're not going to get me with that one. No. <laughs> they just get their little pet doctrines, and that's, that's their litmus test for whether you are an intelligent person or not, whether you agree with them, whether you're okay or not. You need a good theology. You need a good understanding of God. You need a good understanding of the Word. That's what the Thessalonians needed. They needed a good, good theology. So uh, I, I want to remind you that our series on Revelation focused heavily on the issue of persecution. And then I go over here to this study on the Thessalonian letters, and one of the first issues that the Thessalonians had was how to deal with troubles. Part of it was persecution, and part of it was just suffering. That was not necessarily uh, the kind of suffering that was uh, the governmental oppression. Some of it was. All, all those early churches struggled to exist. After all, the founding of the Thessalonian church was right in the middle of this, this issue about they are not a legal church. And just because Paul was gone doesn't mean those Jews left them alone. They harassed them. They did not want that church plant to be there. So yeah, they were, they were established and founded in a struggle, in conflict. And that continued on for the Thessalonian church. But that wasn't the only struggles they faced. There's an implication. One of the commentators I was reading had uh, implied that one of the forms of suffering that, that they were going through was what he calls distress of alienation. Now, what he's talking about is he tried to envision what, it was, what was it like for those, those Greeks and a handful of Jews and the, those uh, important women, what was it like for them to make that conversion to Christianity? Uh, if they were Greeks, they were coming out of paganism. 
If they were Jews, they were coming out of Judaism. If they were women, uh, it was difficult for a woman to take the lead on anything. You know, they were, they were supposed to be uh, uh, submissive and followers, but, but taking the lead and getting out ahead and leading uh, a, a, a cause, that, was not, that did not go over well in that culture. So distress of alienation. Each one of those groups would have had to deal with what it means to attach themselves to Christianity and join this new little congregation, this new little church down there, and pay the price for being separated from their Jewish roots, if they were Jews, or women having problems explaining to their husband why they've got a new hobby and why they're hanging out these weird people down there. Are the Greeks in abandoning their former pagan religion and and it's not hard to imagine how Jews coming out of Judaism would continue to suffer the, the discomfort and, and the uh, inconvenience of having still Jewish family. That they feel like these new converts who are following Jesus, that put us a rift in the family, put, put a split in the family. This topic of Jesus was a hot topic in those days. He had been crucified to the pleasure of most of the Jews, yet if a few Jews took up his cause and sympathized with him, that caused family problems, that caused tribal problems. Can you imagine family get-togethers? Even for Greeks who came out of the pagan lifestyle and started to walk the Christian walk, yet when you get together with a family, there's going to be pagan practices there that they used to do that they have to go in there and have to say, we don't do this anymore. And suddenly you've got division in the family. Now, how many of you people here are relating to this because of your family situation? Because of your social circle. Because you're trying to live for God. You're trying to do the right thing. But when you get together with these people who don't understand it, there's conflict, isn't there? It's difficult, isn't it? People expect you to be like them, and they don't like it when you're not like them, and it creates this tension in your social circle, in your family circle, in your friend's circle. And uh, my wife and I have experienced this from time to time. There have been times in our life when we have gotten together with unsaved relatives, some of them very close to us uh, by blood relations, some of them a little more distant, but get to people who are, get together with people who are not Christians and we are. And one of the most uh, common and uh, uncomfortable situations we get in is when we're together with these relatives and we want to go out and have a bite to eat or we're in their house, want to have a bite to eat. And what do Christians do before they eat? We like to pray. You know, you don't know what happened when people was cooking that food. You like to pray. <laughs> and when you've got unsaved loved ones there, they're not in the habit of praying. Here's what they do. You, know, you people know it because you've been there. You've been in this situation. The food is on the table and they've got their face in that plate and they're gobbling up before you can even, even suggest, well, should we not stop and pray? And so it's happened to my wife and I a number of times. You sit down, you're ready to eat, and customarily we're waiting for uh, an opportunity to say, well, can we say grace here? Can we say a blessing? And before you can ever get that done, they've got a mouthful of food, and they're chopping down. Now what do you do? What do you do? 
do, do you then, with them having food in their mouth, say, we're going to pray, and they go, oh. <laughs> what do you do? I mean, you feel sorry they have put themselves in this awkward position, but you sure don't want to not pray. And that's the awkwardness. So, you know, usually, Ann and I just grab hands. Instead of making a big deal out of it and embarrassing somebody, we'll just quietly pray, God bless his food. And they, they, the people across the table <laughs> pretend like they're ignoring us, but they know what's going on. <laughs> you know, you've been there. Can you imagine the distress of alienation for these people, when they begin to walk their new walk with Jesus Christ, yet they've got to go back to family and friends that are not walking this walk. They had struggles. And Paul wanted to give them a theology that would carry them through their struggles, their persecution, their distress of alienation. And he wanted to remind them that Suffering is, it, it, it's common. Uh, let me just read First Thessalonians 3, verses 2 through 5. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials for you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way as well as you, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. So number one, to have a good theology about suffering and persecution. You have to understand, as Paul was trying to explain to them, that suffering is normal for your Christian walk. Think it not strange, the Bible says, concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Do, do we, did we get did we get the impression somewhere along the way that when we gave our heart and life to Jesus Christ that there was not going to be any more problems? If we did, we got the wrong impression. The fact of the matter is there will be struggles. There will be trials. Living the Christian, just living life is a struggle, but living the Christian life brings its own set of struggles with it. It is tough to do that, and it will remain tough to do that until the day you die. It's going to be hard to live for Jesus. And you have to understand, first of all, you're not abnormal. That's just the way it is. Welcome to the club. Paul thought, here's another good point you need if you need a good theology for suffering in your faith. How you handle your trials says something to people who are watching you. You are an example in how you handle your difficulties. Somebody else wants to be just like you. 
Somebody else will be inspired by you. You've picked up habits from other people that it impressed you when they acted like that, and therefore you've been acting like that ever since. It may be something as simple as the way your parents responded to trouble, and you picked up on that, and that's become your habit. Well, when Dad got angry, he punched holes in the wall. And you've spent the rest of your life punching holes in walls because that's what dad did. Or when mom had trouble, she collapsed in, in, into a puddle of self-pity. And so you've spent the rest of your life doing just what mom did. See, we inspire other people, some people, not everybody, but we inspire other people to act just like us. So when you're going through trials, you remember Somebody is watching you, and ultimately, you're going to teach somebody else to be just like you. Here's the scripture. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so, you became a model to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. <clears throat> and Paul is telling them, because you suffered well. Because you bucked it up. <laughs> because you took it like an adult. You became a model for others who are going through it. Folks, we just can't collapse whenever trials come against us. If we learn to stand strong in the faith that has been given us, we will inspire other people to say, you know, not everybody has to fall to pieces just because trouble comes. I know some people who have stood strong in the midst of the most difficult things that they, you can possibly imagine them going through. And I've seen that in my life. I've seen people with sicknesses, maladies, things in their life that uh, it, what a physical challenge sometimes, what a mental challenge for them to go through that. They never complain. They got a bright, cheery outlook on life. I'm reminded of that. There's a there's a a man. I have seen videos of him on the internet. Uh, from time to time, it, it circles around again. Uh, the man has no arms and no legs, and some just just a tiny little bit of a partial one foot. And so he's a torso. He's a torso with a tiny little foot. And this guy is, he, he, he is a popular speaker on uh, the, 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 the travel circuit and gets around finding some way. He would, he would climb these steps by himself. And he swims. Some people can't swim with arms. He's nothing but a torso, and he swims. And I, what else does he do? I mean, this, you, you, some of you have seen him. And this is a guy that he, he, he could lay there, and he could, he could turn into a vegetable, and he could complain, why was I born like this? Or he gets up and he makes something of his life. And it sure makes me feel really ridiculous when I complain about little things in life. When I see him with such disadvantages that he goes after life and he does things that, that uh, other people are afraid to do, whole people are afraid to do, but he's got such a rich outlook. And Paul is telling these Thessalonians, you suffer well and you inspire people when you suffer well. That's a good Christian witness. What kind of a Christian witness is it? 
to believe that God is all-powerful and almighty and in control of everything and spend our life going, woe is me. That's no Christian witness. Number three, Paul said, let's, let's shore up your suffering theology a little bit more. He suggested to them that we endure our suffering by focusing on the future payoff and not on the present troubles. In other words, you have to believe, no matter what you're going through, that somehow, when it's all said and done, you will be able to say it was worth it all. I would do it again for what I know has been my reward. And I ran across... There are scriptures in Thessalonians to to back this up. I'm not going to go there right now, but I'm going to give you a little statement. And I already shared this on Facebook for some of you who are following me. But as I was reading this, this commentator made this quote, suffering is tolerable when it has a purpose. Now, let me use the example of childbirth, for, for, for which I know very little. But what I observe is this, this is a, an indescribable pain. Nobody would choose to go through just for boredom. <laughs> hey, I don't have anything else to do. Let's have a baby. But why do women have not only one but another one? Why, why, why would anybody do that? multiple times I I don't know from a male perspective I don't get it why do women do it because when they hold that little baby in their arms and they see that life and they love that baby with everything they say I would do it again now I wouldn't but women will because see you suffer well when there's a purpose and that's what Paul is trying to tell the Thessalonians. said, if you can suffer well when you understand that there's an ultimate purpose to your suffering, that when you finally get to the other side, it's you made it and you survived because you fought your battles. You, you thrived because you were challenged by circumstances that made you rise to the occasion. That's a good theology. My suffering is doing something positive in my life. God can do something with this if I will let him. Number four, Paul wanted to tell the Thessalonians, rest assured, all the evildoers are going to be judged by God. Now, we we focused heavily on that in our study on Revelation, but this was also a theme that Paul wanted to share with the Thessalonian church. He said, God is just. He'll pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. Now, how many of you have been done wrong somebody by somebody? And how many of you feel some sort of a sense of relief when there is finally some justice for what has been done to you? I mean, it's not like we really want to wish evildoers evil, but there's something relieving to us to know that evildoers don't get away with it. The frustrating part is how can they do it and they get off free? They don't. It may not be in this life, but somehow, some way, before it's all over, 
God is just and is going to bring every person to account. That'll keep you going. What discourages you is when you think they'll never have to pay for what they did. They'll never know what they did to me. This is not fair. This is not right. They haven't stood before God yet. And Paul writes to them and he reminds them, this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed in heaven, from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony. Now this is, and we may have read that out of context in Thessalonians, as we just think Paul is just talking about end times and what's going on. No, he's talking to the Thessalonians and saying, rest assured, when God wraps this all up, in the end time, when, it, when they, everybody stands before him, God is going to make sure those evil people who are giving you trouble those people who tried to stop my church, those people who have troubled you, those people have brought so much sorrow and so much difficulty to you. Rest assured, God is going to judge them. They're not going to get away with anything. Number five, final point. Paul wanted to Thess the Thessalonians to know you are not alone. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews. Sometimes when we suffer, we think, I'm the only one. Nobody on earth is suffering like I am. The old song, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. <laughs> nobody knows but Jesus. Yeah, a lot of people know what you're going through. And there's people here today that you're struggling and you're suffering and nobody knows what you're going through. And some of us who are struggling with our suffering, we'd feel a whole lot better if we knew you'd suffer too. <laughs> Misery loves company. And I say that facetiously. But to understand, it's not just you. We all have our struggles. Some of us just like to advertise it, and some of us don't. You're not alone. What you are going through is different from what I'm going through. But I've got struggles you don't know about. We're all struggling. I said to begin with, it's normal. You're not alone. We're all in the same situation. We're all trying to get from here to heaven. We're all meeting obstacles and suffering and trials and temptations and persecutions along the way. We're all going through this. I don't mean to diminish what you're going through. I'm just meaning to comfort you that you're not alone. And not only are you not alone, God's not ignorant of what you're going through. He wants to be your ever-present help in the time of need. You need a good theology about your struggles. 
because with a bad theology we blame God for things that are not his fault we must understand what God is trying to do to us because the things that are happening to us 99% of the time is God trying to do something in us what's happening to you is so something can be accomplished in you if you'll let it would you bow your heads